Thanks for downloading the Humanities Institute of Ireland podcast. This podcast features recordings of academic papers from events hosted by the Humanities Institute of Ireland in University College Dublin. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash H-I-I. In this episode, as part of the Distinguished Guest Lecture Series, a lecture by Professor Stephen Mythen of the University of Reading. His research interests concern early prehistoric communities and the evolution of human intelligence, language and music. His paper, Communal and Monumental Architecture at the Origin of the Neolithic in the Near East, New Evidence from Wadi Fanan, was given in the HII in February 2011. Thank you very much for inviting me to uh, Dublin to give this lecture. I'm having a splendid day looking at some lovely stone artefacts earlier from your Mesolithic and Neolithic sites and I'm really pleased to be able to uh, give this lecture tonight about well, what it says there about Neolithic emergence and the role of communal architecture. One of the key things on this title is new evidence because what I'll be describing in the, um, in the latter part of my lecture are some new types of architecture that have come from this site and uh, this is, these are unpublished yet, and it's certainly the first time that I'm speaking about them to an audience, so I think you're probably going to hear it first, actually. There's a paper coming out in the journal Antiquity in June, and one in the Proceedings National Academy of Sciences, uh, hopefully later this year. So as yet, this is unpublished material, and uh, some, some quite, what I, I think, quite interesting finds. Now, um, some of you may not be as familiar with the Neolithic as others, so I've got a little bit of introduction about the origins of the Neolithic and why it's significant. And I'm going to start with this, this um, assertion that the Neolithic is the turning point in human history. I think if you look at the big span of human history, all the way back from the first emergence of humans going back to two and a half million years ago in the African savannah, right up to the present day, there's only really two events of any interest one is the origins of modern humans at around 100, 150,000 years ago and their dispersal. That's the time, I think, of modern intelligence language. And the other one is the Neolithic. It took two and a half million years to go from of living as a hunter-gatherer until we have the Neolithic. And then within a mere 10,000 years, we're living in, I think this is Tokyo, it could have been any big city in the world, we're living in this globalised world of this modern technology, astonishing speed of cultural development. And that's what I mean by the Neolithic being the turning point. And I think it's a turning point wherever you are in the world. So if you're here in, in Ireland, the Neolithic here was the turning point in your, in your, in your cultural history. Now, it happened, the Neolithic is the origin of sedentism, people living in the same place all year round, and farming as a, as a way of life. It happened virtually simultaneously, at least within a few thousand years, quite independently in different parts of the world. My lecture is concerned with the Near East, where the Neolithic transition or revolution, if you like, happened earliest, sometime pretty soon after 11,500 years ago, right at the start of the Holocene. On this um, diagram here, we've got the last ice age, and here's the end of the last ice age here with this dramatic global warming here. This is the last place in the stadium. And the Neolithic really starts straight after the end of that. But elsewhere in the world, you might be in China, where you had the domestication of millet and rice, or in Holland, New Guinea, where you've got these tropical uh, crops, or in Peru, where 
animals who are initially domesticated. You have this transition to domesticated plants and animals and a sedentary existence happening quite different sequences in different parts of the world, but overall, broadly, in these multiple centres. And then from those, this new Neolithic way of life uh, dispersed. Why was agriculture so important? Well, it provides economic surpluses to support craftsmen's, priests, warriors, etc. So you can start having that much more diverse society. And with this type of economic surplus, you can start engaging in, in trade and, 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 and in a serious manner. The accumulation, it allows accumulation of material possessions, the construction of monumental architecture. Now, some hunter-gatherers do indeed construct monumental architecture, and I may well be giving you an example today. But in general, hunter-gatherers are mobile peoples, and they cannot acquire individual wealth that often gives uh, power bases within societies. Thirdly, as I say, it develops the individual power bases and social differentiation, which are difficult to do within hunter-gatherer societies. Again, you do get some social stratification, but the very fact that those are mobile societies and people can uproot and simply leave a community if they so wish to do means that there's constraints on the development of individual power and social differentiation. And agriculture requires territory to be defended. If you spend a lot of time clearing fields or building irrigation systems, erecting um, fences and palisades, you do not easily want other people to come and take this from you. So it requires territory to be defended. It expands the extent of trade and exchange. So these are reasons why, once farming and sedentary communities in place, it had all sorts of knock-on effects. And within a few thousand years, well, within a few hundred years, people were living in towns. Within a few thousand years, you had the early civilizations In all those parts of the world where the first Neolithic communities emerged. But it's not an obvious thing to do. Farming is highly labour-intensive, and it's an unattractive proposition for hunter-gatherers. Why would you want to become a farmer? It's hard work. You have to live in the same place with your neighbours the whole year round. That, that can be socially difficult. So why people adopted agriculture remains one of the great unanswered archaeological questions. Now, it probably always will be unanswered, because as we go from year to year, our interpretations, our theories, and our knowledge change. But ever since, really, archaeology emerged as a discipline, this has been one of our key questions, and it remains so. Why did people start farming? Why did they settle down? What caused the Neolithic emergence? Now, there's loads of theories out there. They can be broadly categorised into three, um, three types. There's pool models. There were too many people for the amount of food available, either because you had substantial population growth or because the environment changed and there wasn't enough food for the same population. And consequently, population exceeded resources, the wild resources, so people had to domesticate, intensively cultivate, led to domestication, led to farming. So people were really pulled into it. Subtly different are push models, where for some reason there was very increased reliance on very specific resources. <coughs> Perhaps some resources that were super abundant, which led to modifications of those relationships, beginning of some sort of cultivation of them, leading to population growth, increased reliance on those resources, and ultimately again to domesticated crops. 
I think the difference between those pull and push models is, is very subtle and perhaps not too um, significant. But there's another category of model which says that really the, it was nothing about changing environments or too many people or economic demands. It was something to do with changing social structure, changing ideological views of the natural world that led to different types of relationships with animal plants and intensification that again led to agriculture. So somehow there was a social driver for this. Changes in social organisation that preceded any change in environments, preceded any change in economy. Now, my, the, the region that I'm concerned with is the, um, the, the Near East, especially the, the Levant, is the, what used to be called the Fertile Crescent. And it's in this um, western arm of the Levant that the earliest Neolithic the earliest farming communities are found. We've got a cow BC dates up there. So we're looking at about 11,500 years ago. Uh, and the culture, the key culture, is called the PPNA. That stands for the Pre-Pottery Neolithic A. Because this, this, unlike in Europe, the Neolithic here uh, emerged thousands of years before pottery was um, invented and, and used. Pottery came in as rather... Um, Late, late idea. Uh, and the site I'm particularly going to talk about is Wadi Fanan, way down here, which is actually on this map here now, Wadi Fanan 16. Um, recently discovered, here's the Dead Sea, and here's um, the Mediterranean hills in the, um, in the Palestinian territories where Jericho is, 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 is located. And it was from this region that the earliest Neolithic communities. Um, they developed, and then that dispersed quite rapidly into Cyprus, then into Turkey, and ultimately into, into Europe. In terms of when is this happening in the Middle East regarding the environment, as I've already said, it's, it, we're looking at the earliest years of the uh, Holocene. Oops. Here's the, um, here's the um, pan-environmental signal from the Greenland ice cores here. Here's a couple of other proxy curves coming from speedotherms and um, uh, some, other, some, other, some other measure. And here, this marks here the start of the Holocene, where you get a dramatic increase in temperature and precipitation. And the PPNA period is really marked in that first thousand years here. The extent to which it stretches back prior to this environmental change is still uh, being debated. Now, we have radiocarbon decks from the site, you'll see, that indeed do indeed go back to 12, 12,500 years ago. They're difficult to interpret for various reasons that I make it on to. But I think in very broad terms, we are, it's difficult to get away from the idea that we are somehow looking at a response to global warming, increased precipitation. At least that gave the opportunity to develop agriculture. Now, in the um, Near East, the... Um, history of studying the origin of the Neolithic really goes back to the 1950s with Kathleen Kenyon's excavations at, at Jericho. And here's the, here's the tell of Jericho. Uh, this was a picture I took in 1999 with the, uh, the modern settlement around it. Looks like it's, this is the tell ravaged by various archaeologists, not looking in a terribly good state there. And what um, Kathleen Kenyon... And what, what this amounts to is the fact that collapsed mud brick buildings of later Neolithic Bronze Age and Iron Age communities. And what Kathleen Keenan was able to do was to excavate some deep soundings 
through the sections of the tell to the very basal deposits. And there she found traces of small round structures that she identified as the earliest settlements there, and she coined the term the pre-pottery Neolithic. She called it pre-pottery because by that time, Gordon Child, working in Europe, had already defined the Neolithic as being a package with domesticated animals, groundstone actors, and pottery. What Keenan was finding here, she argued that she had domesticated resources that were that pottery. Now, what she was also found was this... Sorry, I keep hitting the wrong button. Uh, this, this tower here. This is contemporary with those small round houses. It's a Neolithic tower. Unique, still remains unique in the art record, but a piece of monumental architecture right at this dawn of agriculture. Now, because Keenan was de- excavating these very deep, narrow soundings, she never really got a, an impression of what one of these early Neolithic sites w- would look like. And it wasn't until the, uh, the 1970s, really, in fact, between 1970s and 1990s, that we had some open-area excavations of these very earliest Neolithic sites. And this is a picture here of Netted Hagdud, uh, you see here. And this was excavated by a team led by Offa by Yosef. And what they found were these um, sub-circular structures made either out of mud brick, as here, or pise. Pise is just, just basically mud clay, which is um, compressed to form walls and floors. Um, they found um, plant remains here, which were barley grains, which had not fully evolved into domesticated forms. It seems they were still exploiting wild crops, but were cultivating them, by which we mean they were probably weeding them, watering them, replanting them, but the actual biological change of the plant um, hadn't occurred to turn it into domesticated form. No trace of any wild an- or any domesticated animals. They would disappear for another thousand years or so. Now, in this region of the um, West Bank, there were several sites excavated, Gilgal and numerous others, and they all had these fairly shallow deposits, nothing, no dramatic architecture at all. But nevertheless, it, the idea emerged that was here, in the West Bank area of the Near East, um, that the origin of agriculture occurred. This is where the Neolithic started. This is where plants were domesticated, and within a thousand years, the first domesticated animals, and it spread out from here. And the traces were these rather, in a way, unimpressive settlements. But compared to the preceding hunter-gatherers, these are in fact quite complex, because the preceding hunter-gatherers did not have these sorts of structures at all. And then in the 1990s came two really dramatic discoveries in the northern Levant, uh, which completely changed our view about where and how agriculture may have originated. So these are really recent. You know, we've got the great thing about archaeology in this well-trodden area of the Near East is that there's still new discoveries. So people studying this are still thrilled by what they're, they're finding, and literally the history books <laughs> are being rewritten. This is the site of Jephthah Amar. Uh, here it was excavated as a salvage excavation before the flooding of this uh, region because of the damming of the Euphrates. And it was a, um, quite a reasonably large site excavation. And within the middle of the site, they found this uh, very large structure here, which these compartment areas, type of which was never, had never been seen before, um, 
And this dates back to that 11,500 years ago, contemporary with the earliest levels of Jericho. And they also found lots of these rectangular square structures, which are more characteristic of the slightly later Neolithic, the PPNB. Uh, they also found uh, a whole range of different ritual deposits, quite different to anything that had been seen at Jericho or Netav Hagdad or any of those West Bank sites. A lot more symbolic behaviour, ceremonial behaviour happening. So, for instance, this, uh, this, this splayed headless body here, was actually fa- this was actually found um, in the middle of this, uh, what, could, what looks like a storage area, and was a deliberate deposit before the site was abandoned. This is a, you can see, here's the little occupation structures, and then they found this metre deep, uh, what's been described as a monumental structure, it's not that big actually, with benches around, Slots for large pillars. Here's another relatively large structure with all these oracorns on the base. That seems that there was um, skulls of oxen or or wild oxen around either on the ceiling or around on the walls which have fallen down. And then a a whole range of animal imagery of wild animals. So here's a site just at the origin of agriculture and yet there seems to be a real concern about wild animals. So you've got carvings of, of scorpions of raptors, of, of birds of prey, of felines, of snakes, uh, uh, aurochs here. Imagery of wild and dangerous animals. So there was a degree of symbolic activity here and a degree of seen, com- communal activity by these monumental structures, unseen down further south in, in the West Bank. That was then topped by the discovery of the site of Gobekli Tepe, which really changed people's minds about agriculture. And um, this, this, this just astonished archaeologists. When it was first discovered, people thought this was a Byzantine site because of the um, type of... Um, uh, the, 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 well, just the type of stonework on the site. But we now know that it's a Neolithic, hilltop um, uh, settlement. It's in southern Turkey, and the photos you'll see are from a visit I made in 2003... Now, since then, there's been rather more extensive excavation, but I don't have any more recent photographs, unfortunately. This is a limestone hill, and what was found, um, dug into the side of it, were some circular enclosures within which these massive pillars of stone were erected, on which there were carved wild animals. This dates to about 11,500 years ago, um, and now there are... Uh, I think five or six of these large enclosures uh, which have been excavated now. And at the time, there was no trace at all of any domestic settlement at all. So here's looking close up. Here's one of these um, circular structures, stone walls with these benches in and these pillars constructed into the walls. And on these pillars were carvings of wild and dangerous animals. So you've got a fox here. You've got uh, wild boars there. Okay, you've got some nice geese there. They look, they look quite friendly. Um, looks like they're on water. But other ones have got scorpions on. They've got spiders on. They've got just human arms on. Going there, it's like a combination of Stonehenge and Lascaux Cave all mixed into one. So it's an astonishing sight. All about, seems all about symbolism, ideology, ritual, communal activity. Right at that dawn of agriculture before any trace of domesticated animals have been known. Now, the, these were quarried, these big stones were quarried out of the bedrock, 
sort of around the back of the cycle. And if you walk across there, your feet crunch over all the flint tools that have been used to hewn them out of the bedrock. It's quite astonishing. And looking from the top of the hill there, one looks over the, the Karagadag Hills, which are these in the distance. Now, geneticists have identified the wild strains of wheat, which are closest to our domestic varieties, as having coming from this region. So not only did we have the um, closest biological, um, in terms of genetic diversity, traces of the earliest farming, we had these, what must have been gathering places for thousands of people to have undertaken these astonishing monumental constructions by hunter-gatherers. Nobody ever imagined anything like this could have existed. So as you can imagine, it came out that there was a flurry of publications that, oh, we need to forget about down here. This is where the Neolithic must have emerged because we've got a scale of social and symbolic activity here vastly greater than anything down, seen down here. That looks entirely derivative. Now, just when this was being published, myself and my colleague Bill Finlayson were wandering around Wadi Fanan, right down here in the, in the south of Jordan. And our colleague was saying... You're not going to find anything of interest down there. It's all happening in the north. If that's, you know, this is going to be a backwater than an ethic. Well, maybe they're right, but we spent some time um, walking these landscapes. And just on this knoll here, in April 1986, we came over a little scatter of chipstone artefacts. And we've effectively been working on that site ever since. It took us 11 years to undertake the first evaluation. Uh, that was field work from about 1997 on and off through to 2003, and then up until 2010 to publish a volume. And then we've had three large seasons of excavation. And um, we've not found a backwater in the think We've found something that may not as be impressive as Gobekli Tepe, but certainly as impressive as Jeff Omar, and I think requires us to rechange once again our views about where Neolithic originated. So I'm now going to talk about my uh, uh, site here. The site of WF16 is found um, <coughs> right at the base of the escarpment going up to the Jordanian plateau. This is Wadi Fainan, coming out in the Wadi Araba, the southern part of the Jordan Valley. Uh, famed for its Roman and Byzantine archaeology, there's a great field system here, and um, there are, in fact, three Neolithic sites in the region, which is why it makes it so interesting. Um, there's WF16 that we discovered in April 1986. Now, prior to that, there was a site here known, Guer 1, which is PPNB. That follows on from PPNA, and I'll show you a picture in a moment, and that looks like a proper farming village. It's something what you'd recognise as a Neolithic village. And then, um, a bit later than that, there... There's what's known as Tilbody Finan, down here in the base of the Wadi, which is a pottery Neolithic site. Now, I think this is the first time that the Neolithic, as you would recognise in Europe, really comes together. It's where you've got clean domesticated sheep, poorly domesticated cattle, you've got wheat, um, a barley there, and you've got pottery. It's the whole Neolithic package. And I think that doesn't coalesce <coughs> until around 8,000 uh, BP. So we've got a fantastic sequence in this one landscape of the um, development of the Neolithic. This is the Guerre 1 site, and you can see you've got here 
proper houses, stone-built houses. These would have been two-storey houses with storerooms. Um, you can recognise this as a, as a village. Really dense clustering, which is characteristic of these PPNB um, villages. This is clearly a settlement with some form of agriculture economy. Probably got domesticated goats, probably growing um, barley on the edges of the, of, of the wadi. And the site we've found is the one that immediately precedes this. This is the landscape today. This is at the end of Wadi Fanan, and we're just going. This is Wadi Gwir that winds up all the way up into the uplands. Uh, it's a pretty barren landscape today. It gets winter floods. Um, if you'd gone back uh, 11 and a half or 10,500 years, probably would have looked a little bit like this. Um, a lot more water in the Wadi. A lot more vegetation in the landscape. And that vegetation would have allowed water to infiltrate down, would have probably removed that whole flash flood event that we have at the moment. And the, this was a little reconstruction we did after our initial evaluation would dramatically change what that looks like now, and, and you'll see in light what we're going to see. We know people were hunting uh, wild goats, they were catching buzzards, and this landscape had oak and tamarisk and Fig, a very wide range of um, uh, trees. I'm not going to talk about the environmental reconstruction because we've got too much to talk about on the archaeology. So our initial um, evaluation involved um, excavating three small trenches. Um, this was the knoll over which there was a little scatter of flint artefacts, some of which had little typological pieces that looked Neolithic. And we simply spent a few years excavating a small trench here, one there, and one over there. These are, and here's a, here's a plan of that. Here's, here's the central of the knoll here. Here's a two of our test trenches there, and a few test bits around here to try to look at the extent of the sites. And um, these are quite interesting. Here's trench two. You see we've got a little circular structure here with some really nice stratified deposits, um, quernstones in the middle, um, <coughs> on, on which there's lots of plants being processed, and some foundation burials being placed here effectively plastered into the, into the floor, dating to about 11,000 years ago. Here's another, here's our trench three. Rather more sophisticated architecture here with a double-skinned wall, um, and again, some, in this case, a rather nice single um, inhumation, with the skull having been sort of wrenched up and rested on a pillow stone, and looking at where the floor level was, it's likely that skull would have been just slightly above the floor level. Um, it's sort of, this is a characteristic of the Neolithic in this region. You bury mum and dad or grandma or whoever below the floor of the house. Later, their skull cut developed. And this looks like it started a skull cut by have, skull cult by having skulls emerge. Now, these were pretty interesting finds in these small <coughs> trenches. But what we, we undertook some geophysics across the knob, and we found... Um, anomalies that suggest there were much larger structures. This here is that trench which had the foundation burial in. So you can see the size of this structure by that one. And the geophysics suggested we had much larger structures here. Much larger structures. Unfortunately, on that, on that base, the, um, the Arts and Humanities Research Council of um, uh, England gave us a, um, a sizable grant, um, three quarters of a million pounds, to go and do three seasons of excavation. That, that's, that's what it basically costs, three seasons of excavation. Uh, in Wadi Fanan, so in the April of 
2008, 2009, 2010, we've undertaken a fairly sizable excavation, uh, taking off the top of the knob. And here you can see what we've done. There are two small trenches, and we've opened up a trench right across the top of the knob. And this is now the largest, it's not particularly big, but it's the largest open air excavation of a Neolithic site in this, in this region. Uh, I have two co-field directors, Bill Finlayson, with whom I've worked for many years, be familiar to some people in this room at least. He's the director of the British Council of Research in the Levant. And Mohammed Najjar, who's a Jordanian archaeologist, and has got a lot of experience excavating many sites of periods within this part of um, uh, Jordan. In these field seasons, we had a team of about 40 either students, professional archaeologists, um, specialists, and then supplemented by about another 20 um, Bedouin uh, workmen. And um, <coughs> the, um, it's a pretty spectacular place to work in. The archaeology is very challenging. As soon as one goes below that very thin top skin, one gets into Neolithic archaeology. Um, in fact, the whole top of the village basically has been eroded away, so one is immediately into the floor levels, or in fact the lower floor levels, of, of various, um, various, various houses. Um, these sites um, involve a bit of digging and vast amount of sieving because all the, all the material that goes through these um, dry sieves and then um, picked through meticulously because this is where you tend to find the, uh, many of the most important artefacts. Uh, and there's my son after, uh, I think, more than a day's work there at least, and, you know, picking through some of this uh, material. And also vast amounts of flotation. What's critical in these sites is getting the plant materials. And separating the plant material from the sediment is challenging. So one, one uses these devices where one floats the sediment, the plant material, to the top and then dries the residue and the flots and then meticulously picks through all this um, residue and flots. It takes many, many, many hours and um, then a massive... Um, process of putting all of this information onto a large uh, database. So outside of the excavation, there's a vast amount of work happening during the excavation other than just digging. Then of course there's years of post-excavation afterwards. I'm just going to focus on the, the architecture in the rest of my talk. Here's the trench at the end of the second field season. And um, here's... here's Here's, the, here's one of our early trenches, that's our trench one. Uh, you can see the area that we've opened up. And basically what you're seeing here are a whole series of circular and subcircular structures with these are semi-subterranean, they're dug into the ground, and then they're lined with mud plaster. Uh, initially we thought these were domestic houses, domestic dwellings, but each one of them seems to be quite different. A really strange range of structures. And what you can see down here is just emerging is a large circular communal and monumental structure. Uh, and hence the title of my, 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 my talk. That's the end of the, that was at the end of our second season. You can see we, you know, the digging goes quite slowly. One doesn't remove very much because as soon as you get into these, there's complex stratigraphy. So one excavates quite slowly. Here, massive midden deposits have been removed. This is 
towards the end of our final season. And that um, structure at the end of the site is becoming resolved into this big, it's not circular, it's more horseshoe-shaped structure at one end of the site with this very dense cluster of structures here. And here's a uh, plan of the, what the site looks like. What, what the, what's on here, the grey here, is this pise. This is all built out of mud. And we've recently been out, well I didn't go out, but team went out recently to reconstruct one of these houses. The quantity of water that you require to even build one of these small <coughs> structures is vast. So what they're doing, building this structure here, which is all made out of mud, is a vast investment. Okay, not nearly as much as chipping all those monumental lumps of stone as a proper Gobekli Tepe. But nevertheless, it's a large communal structure that we have here, the design of which has never been seen before in the Neolithic. Completely unexpected. We're completely astonished to, to, to find it. What I'll do, I'll just describe some of the characteristics of this and take it and then choose just a couple of these other structures to describe. Uh, so this was um, at, the, at the end of our first season, at the end of 2008, and at this back part of the site, north part of the site, we had found this um, little wall here. We thought that was probably its entire height, with a big area of homogeneous midden deposit. Now, those of you who are archaeologists here will know that midden is um, you know, treasure to archaeologists, because this was filled with bits of broken animal bone, broken tools, manufacturing debris for making beads, vast amounts of charcoal... So from this, um, we've got a fantastic assemblage of animal bones and plant remains from this Neolithic site. We haven't even began analysing them yet, so we don't know whether they're dealing with wild or domesticated animals. My guess is they're all going to be wild because of the data we read, but we'll, but we'll see. And we thought that was pretty good, having a big area of midden, which looked like sort of a communal waste dump for this, for this village. And as we excavated it, the... Um, this wall got, got, more, got deeper, and we'd be able to see tip lines where this midden was um, thrown in. There was areas of burning on this clay wall, and various horizons had lots of these land snails coming in. And they're probably creeping in antiquity to come and feed on all the rotting organic debris within this midden deposit. And as we excavated further, the wall got deeper, and we came onto a floor horizon. You see here... And you can just see there a quernstone, um, a mortar, just, which is embedded in the floor, disappearing. And in the edge of the wall, massive post holes. This post hole is about that deep, with a fox skull at the base. We have charcoal from there, which is dating it. Actually, I'm not going to give you any carbon dates, but the date of this structure is about 11,600 years ago at least. And we haven't really got the base of it. And at the back, we seem to have a platform emerging... Looked a little bit like the platforms at Jeffalamark, just coming out there. And so this lovely, remember this bin coming out of a solid floor, and as that floor got exposed, it was a quite a solid piece of floor within, these, within which these pits had been dug, which had the remains in from um, clearly from feasting, packed full of goat bones and sheep bones. Well, well I say goat bones, we don't know quite what type of animal they are, but some form of. Um, some form of goat, whether it's wild or domestic, we don't know. Maybe, maybe it's wild ibex. And in this particular one, there's the bucania of a goat put in. That's the skull with the big horns, which have been clearly deliberately placed into this skull. 
And as we excavated further, it got stranger and stranger. <coughs> here's, my, here's my wife here, and the supervisor, and they're looking at this very strange gully that's emerging. Nobody's ever seen one of these before. This is moulded in the floor, so it's moulded up, and to be like a little channel. looks like it's full, full, full liquid to, to flow down. Um, and you're coming down onto this very fine, hard floor layer that's made there. And by the end of that 2008 season, we'd effectively dug out a quadrant of this um, structure. Here's the encircling wall. In fact, we know now that this, is, that this is an encircling wall of it. But here's an encircling wall. We seem to have something that was a bench at this end. This is a... Um, a late grave, it's a Byzantine grave, Nibitine grave that's been dug through. There's Byzantine occupation in this, in this valley as well, and there's, they occasionally they dig, semi, dig graves on top of these knolls. Here are these strange gullies with these pits that have gone down into the previous, in the lower floor level, and you can see there's two mortars, quernstones here, typical of PPNA that have been embedded into the floor. Well, well, we had one field season left, and clearly what we wanted to do was to dig this whole thing out. This is a vast task. There's just massive sediment here to remove. Fortunately, I was able to get a supplementary grant from the Werner Gren Foundation, and so we, um, we moved our spoil heaps and extended the trench. And here we are, moving the spoil heap and digging the other area of the trench. And this is at the end of that field season, looking down the site... And here you can see this large monumental structure. These other fantastic structures here, which we'll talk about in a moment. And here's this monumental structure at the end. And here's a, um, here's a good picture of it. Uh, this here is a later house that's been built on top of it. I say house, it's a later structure. It's got these massive freestanding walls. Probably the earliest freestanding walls in the Neolithic from the region. All these other structures are built into the ground, semi-subterranean. Uh, what have we got? We've got, um, I'll tell you what I'll do, I'll, I'll move on a couple of slides and I'll show, you, I'll show you more clearly what we've got. That gives you the, some idea of the scale of it. What we thought was a platform turned out to be a bench going all the way around, and in fact the first tier of the two tiers of benches, here's the edge of that later Nabataean grave, here you can see the gullies coming up. <coughs> this slide shows some of the features that we've got. It's a horseshoe shape. Right down the middle of it, bisecting it, is a deep trough. This has got vertical sides. It's at least 75 centimetres deep. In the lower level of it, there's water laid sediment. And it goes... Oh, the wrong button. It goes right down, bisects it right down the middle... And at the end, it ends in a very large pit, um, hexagonal pit. We've only done one sondage into that, and we've found massive stone bowls and more feasting debris within that. Uh, and remember, this is about at least 11,500 years old. Now, coming out from that trough are a series of these gullies. There's one, two, three, and on this side as well. And on this side, and you can see where this structure's been built over... That bit there is remains of this floor there, be built over it. So they're coming out in this radiating pattern. Um, and they're sort of convex in shape, with massive post holes in the middle of them. So it doesn't look like they're for, for liquids. It looks like they may have been partition dividers of this, of this area. We've got various other little post holes around. 
We've got a, one bench here all the way around, uh, two lake graves in there, another upper tier of bench come around here, massive moulded post holes within the, um, within, the, um, in, within the wall there. This structure was built in later. It goes with the later floor in here and all that midden debris. And within this are massive mortars. This couple of mortar is really of a, of a, of a monumental size when the fill is, the fill is taken out. Uh, so, um, just popping back, nobody ever seen a structure like this before. We're totally astonished by it. We've no idea what it is. Absolutely no idea. It looks like it's something for some sort of... Well, it's clearly communally built. This needs a lot of people participating to build it. The benches suggest there's some sort of communal performance happening. The mortar suggests there's also some practical activities happening, unless there are things for making a, a, a pigment or, or so, so forth. Nobody ever seen anything like this before. Nobody ever imagined that they'd find anything like this in the southern bits of the, uh, of, 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 of the wadi. It's decorated. So here's one of the, those gullies. Here's, you can see a post hole here, and it's coming up here and stops at this um, front edge of the bench, going round, on which there's this um, pattern. Okay, it's just made with a, with a finger, but it's this uh, undressing pattern there. And then there's further layers of mud plaster which have been put on, which has been, which has been covering it. And uh, just, just wanted to show you this piece. This is just some of the decorated stone from it, but I find this piece quite intriguing because this doesn't almost look like it replicates the actual design of this big structure. Here you've got what looks like a central cully with these radiating gullies out. That almost looks like it's replicated. We'll look at a little bit more of the material culture um, shortly. So that's this big monumental structure, uh, Object 75 it's called, which will be um, shortly published in um, antiquity with this trough through the middle of these radiating things. Just show you some slides of some of these other structures, which... If we'd only found these, it would have been quite an um, um, important Neolithic site. Some of them look like tiny little work areas. So this structure here is here. This is all mud pise. It's all lined. And this is a little assemblage of um, artefacts. Um, flint borers, core stone tools, um, bits of worked bone... It looks like a sort of <coughs> workshop where they're making beads and the working and the working bone. Um, we've got some bits of clay out of here, which we've got seems to have um, some fabrics impressed into it. Decorated bits of bone, interior little features. There's a little um, niche cut to the cut into its wall. And in fact, one of the um, one of in the in the first field season, one of our Bedouin workmen who began excavating the wall rather too vigorously. Um, before we noticed, he actually dug half the wall out and found that actually encased within the wall was another great goat horns. So in all these walls, there may be all sorts of things encased within them. And if he hadn't over-excavated this wall, we'd have never known that that's the case. So who knows what's buried within these walls? I want to describe this structure here, 0045. Um, beautifully preserved, near the thick house, Again, dating, I say house, structure. Dated about 11,500 years old. Um, this is what it looks like at the early stage of the excavation. Here you've got this encircling mud pise wall. Um, we've already taken a layer of mud pise off this, on which there was this nice 
constructed half um, within which there was charcoal dating to, I think, 11,200 calibrated BP. Now, this is another one of these Byzantine graves that are cut through the deposits. And it gave us a section through the deposits, but we couldn't understand the section because it had this big slab of Pisa there that we thought must have been a floor that sort of collapsed or something. As it turns out, that is actually a standing structure within this um, Neolithic, um, Neolithic structure. So as we excavated further, that began to be resolved as this uh, <coughs> sort of um, uh, oval-shaped structure within this, uh, within this building. And here we've got massive bits of um, Pise that we now know is in fact the collapsed roof. Because unlike all the other structures at the site, which seem to have been cleaned out and abandoned, this one burned down. Fantastic, fantastic find to have a burned down house. And this is the roof that's fallen down, collapsed onto some of the floor layers. Um, massive bits of Pise, um, on which there are impressed plant moraines, showing us what sort of vegetation used to cover it. And there's bits of, um, bits of bitumen, um, they didn't have pottery, so they either used stone bowls or they used wicker bowl, wicker baskets that they cover in bitumen to make them waterproof. So we've got bits of bitumen here. Um, and coming out of here were, again, lovely bone-decorated objects, and also um, a big mandible, human mandible, coming from within these collapsed roof blocks. And scattered around the area were other bits of teeth, other bits of cranium. So it looks like there was a human skull hanging up from this roof at some time, which fell down with the roof. As we went further, um, this is a horizon of burnt timbers. And you can see these uh, big bits of charcoal here, branches, timbers, basically, which form, in fact, a nice crisscross pattern. So these were seen to be the timbers which were holding the roof, which burnt and then collapsed, fell down within it. As we went further down, we were beginning to find um, a more Pise blocks that are collapsed from walls, and a whole range of nice objects, this little clay sort of face of an animal, something just easily made, a phallus here, there's quite a few um, phallic objects from the, from the site. And then as we went further, a whole series of floor supports. So these are bits of stone which have got notches at the top, which would be placed on the floor. And these would have been supports for floor beams. Uh, uh, so we have a raised floor, and we've got these from a couple of other sites in the region, um, especially the site of um, Drar. And in this site we show where those floor supports were found, and here we've got ranging poles and other rods, showing how these floor timbers would have been above this. Um, and then we have this peculiar central um, feature, which has got this very finely made <coughs> Pise wall here. You can see we're leaving some sediment out there while it's collapsing. We've only dug out half of it, and in the middle we've got these strange partitions. Um, don't know what these are. I have no idea what this is. I have no idea what any of this stuff is. Um, it's got uh, we've, obviously we've got deposits from these floors now. Maybe this was used for plant storage. We'll look at the geochemistry of these sections see if we can see any variation there. There's also niches in the walls going around from which stone platters and bowls have been found. Wattle impressions on the inside of the wall. So, um, all in all, fantastically preserved Neolithic structure, by far the best preserved in the, in the Near East. And adjacent, these two other structures that we've dug out, which are quite 
different in many ways, but almost as intriguing. This one here, you can see how deep that is. This is getting off two metres deep. It's going down to a very fine floor. It's got this partition wall in the middle with a beautifully finely worked surface. With these, again, niches on the side, but possibly holes for a ladder for getting in and out. There's another floor, higher floor surface here with a quern stone there. Uh, here's another circular structure. Whole series of floor layers here. These are mud floors with then occupation debris. There's a quern stone emerging there. And we've got a succession now of radiocarbon dates from these. And we've got the potential to get a large number of radiocarbon dates so we can work out how long any of these single floor layers survived. And then other structures next to it that we haven't we just haven't had the time resource to start excavating. So we feel we've only just begun touching the surface of this site. The settlement, it was also a cemetery. We've got something like 30, 30 skeletons, 30 burials from the site. We've got a few of these are Nebatine. All the others appear to be Neolithic in varying stages of preservation. Some very well-preserved ones here. Quite a lot of children burials in... Um, in, in various states of preservation. Where these skulls are sort of like that, it's show, that's where the site has been really heavily deflated and you've lost the top. These are the little burial bones within the midden deposits. Um, burials tend to be either found under the floor, probably foundation, or sometimes cut through, cut through walls, which my colleague Bill thinks is like a, an abandonment. It's like when they're closing the house and leaving it. I'd actually, I'd actually, take, I'd actually get that. But anyway, we've got burials in various um, contexts. Um, some of them with gypsum, again, with um, probably some plant fabric impressions on. Uh, some spooky stuff going on. This is a, uh, this is nine cranial crania, fragments of crania, packed into each other like egg, like a sack of egg cups. Um, nine of them, and then underneath one fully articulated burial. So there's some, um, there's some good stuff going on. A um, few animal burials, we've got that stuff going towards in the wall, and here you can see there's a bird here, a crane. So there's, there's its neck. You see that? Here's its wings, I suppose. This is a little niche in a house. Um, the excavator says it must be a deliberate deposit as opposed to a bird that's wandered in and died which I, I, I don't know how a bird would want to and die, but anyway. So there's some stuff happening with um, animals. Now finally, some of the material culture. <coughs> no pottery, uh, lots of nice decorated stone, um, small bowls, um, decorated larger vessels, uh, lots of different types of mortars and pestles and pounders. Of course, trying to differentiate what's purely utilitarian objects and what's symbolic objects or whatever, it's extraordinarily difficult. And I think they just blend into e each other at the site. Quite a lot of phallic objects. We saw, the, um, we saw that one in bone earlier. Here's a, I mean, there's, there's, that's clearly a phallic object. Um, this must be... We, this, is, this is quite large. We always, thought, we always thought it was a cricket bat at first. <laughs> it sounded like a cricket bat, but then we realised, well, it's probably an unfinished phallus, which um, changed, our <laughs> changed our views of how we should handle this object. But anyway... Um, uh, tons of tons of chip stone, just tons of. These are these are the classic PPNA alkyne points with these two notches. Um, some other distinctive Neolithic points, just tons of this stuff. Um, lovely bone objects, both both pierces and awls and decorated objects. Uh, more pestles, 
Here's a, here's a uh, pestle or a pounder, but on the, on the outside of this are three snakes. You can see them just snaking across the surface, and they've got nice little heads and things. So again, it reminds us of Jephel Amar, where snakes were a key, um, key aspect of the symbolism there. Uh, and we've got other objects, very fine objects, and the best similarity of those are also far in the north of Levant, some more decorated stone objects, uh, little... Uh, I think this is made out of clay, this one. Um, beautifully decorated. Who knows what these are? The spitting image of the big Arabic gaming boards that you now find out there. But they're, they're about that size. These are about that size. So who, know, who knows what they are? Um, and here's a lovely object um, found by Abu Sabil there. And you can see it's got these interesting undulating designs. Just like on the wall of, that, of, the, of, the, of the bench... These horizontal lines between. And when I saw that, I thought, I've seen that before somewhere. And the closest similarity is this object here. This comes from Net of Hagdud, the site out on the West Bank. The same motifs on, of these undulating images. My guess is a symbol of water, but who, who knows, with these horizontal lines. Uh, those are shells coming from the Red Sea and the Dead Sea, used for jewellery. And some beads, some really big beads, made out of green stone, uh, these are pretty big beads. Um, we've got all the bead manufacturing debris here, and then some really whoppers. Okay, now these these take time to make. These must have been high status, high status objects. Uh, mother of shell ornaments, uh, more mother of shell, bits of human crania with pierced holes. We saw that bit of skull earlier. That must have been hung up. These um, other bits like that. Few animal figurines, by far, most of the art is geometric in design. There's a few animal figurines. This looks, looks like the head of a. This looks like the head of a goat, possibly a dog. Dogs would have been domesticated at the time. It's got little ears, little eye. This looks like possibly, well, probably an animal. Who knows? One little human head here. Um, I think these are at the same scale. It's from Jeffel Amar in Syria, his little head. And in fact, there's a face on the, on the other side of that as well. If you turn around, it's got a face on, face on both sides. Um, so, rather remarkable sight, actually. Here we are, we're down into the back wall, to the back end of the Neolithic. You'll never find anything down there, Steve. What are you going down there for? And here we've got this astonishing sight with um, that lovely material culture, a communal structure, the design of which never seen before and we're really struggling to know what, how to interpret it with this gully and these, this trough and these gullies and these benches some beautifully preserved <coughs> architecture and the only way is we ain't got any more money to dig it we've run out of money so, so what we're doing at the moment is we're trying to write up the excavation and then we'll have about five years of post-excavation if we can raise probably another what million pounds for that and then hopefully in about 2016 we'll go back and try and do some more excavation so conclusions are um, W16 is, is the best preserved early Neolithic site in the Near East. It's got the deepest stratigraphy, the largest skeletal sample, and the largest fallen assemblage. By far, by an order of magnitude, our animal bones are far larger than from any other site. When we get money, we'll see whether these are wild, domesticated, something in between. Dense class of semi-subterranean mud clay buildings... Very diverse in character. Each seems to be rather different. Don't seem to be domestic dwellings that people are living in. Um, seems to be largely contemporary. Over 75, monumental in scale. 
several times larger than the building of Jaffa Lamar. No idea what, what its function is. Uh, large quantity of animal fauna. Uh, lots of nice, of course, bonus and artifacts. Similarities for Northern Levant. Overall, it seems to support those social models for the origins of agriculture. Uh, my, the animal bones we've looked at from our evaluation, they seem to all be wild. It looks like we've got this large communal structure here being built and all this rich symbolic material culture originating prior to any changes in economy. That's what, that's what this is suggesting at the moment. So it seems to support those social models for the origins of the Neolithic and agriculture. <coughs> and I think and that's my last slide. So thank you. Oh, no, it's not. There you are. <laughs> Supports the model that Neolithic... This awful word, Neolithization, was an emergent process throughout the Levant. So I think rather than saying it happened in the northern Levant or it happened at Jericho, I think what this is showing is that almost contemporary, throughout this wide region, we've got these complex developments in different areas. It's like the Neolithic was emerging throughout this area rather than had a pinpoint origin and then, and then, <coughs> and then spread out from that. So thank you for listening. I've talked a little bit longer than I, than I meant to, but thank you very much for, uh, for, for listening to, the, uh, to my talk.